Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am Tiffany Huang, your host for the month of March, and I want to welcome you to our show. March is Women's History Month, and we are using our platform to celebrate our Asian American sisters whose stories are an inspiration to us all. Tomorrow, we hit the one-week anniversary of the tragic events that unfolded in the Atlanta area that left eight American dead, six of which were Asian American women. Against the backdrop of the last 12 months and the rising hate crimes and incidents our community has faced, it is more important than ever that we share our stories, especially those of AAPI women. So today we are so honored to have Vietnamese American Sara Nguyen here with us. Sara is the founder of Nguyen Coffee Supply, which launched in 2018 as America's first specialty Vietnamese coffee importer and roaster. Sara, you're so much more than an entrepreneur, and we will definitely get to your amazing body of work. But I wanted to first start by saying it's a pleasure to have you on the show. From one UCLA alumni to another, thanks for coming on. <laughs> oh, Tiffany, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much for holding this space and, and, of course, for having me and sharing my voice. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first thing I really actually wanted to ask you is, is how are you doing? Um, it's been a really difficult week for me. Yeah. So I know you have roots in social activism all the way back until your youth. So how, how are you doing? <sighs> Heavy question. You know, when you were just reading the intro or stating the intro and reflecting on the last week, I just started taking like deep breaths. <sighs> yeah. um, it's been like, I found out first thing Wednesday morning because I was off my phone Tuesday night so I woke up to all the tragic news and the shooting and you know I was just a total wreck that day and I feel like since that Wednesday it's been like up and down you know and when people would check in with me I was like they checked in with me Wednesday I ignored everyone and they checked in on my Thursday I'm like I'm doing better today than I was yesterday then they checked in with me Friday I'm like I'm doing better today than I was yesterday but then on Saturday, it was like, just kind of like, I was in a pit again. Yeah. And then I just felt like, you know, I'm just like a very, very action-oriented person. I'm a huge problem solver. So I just always want to be on like the super linear path of like, I have a problem. I have an emotion. Let me face it and let me like resolve it and move forward, right? But this process just, it, it has, it's just been up and down. It just hasn't been, oh. It's, it's, I thought I was like, by Friday, I was feeling like, like kind of good again, but. I mean, I think that's absolutely human and normal. We're all feeling that. I share in the same pain that you're feeling as well. And, you know, it's not only pain, it's anger too, right? And it, it runs the gamut of emotions. And I think probably there's helplessness in there. I don't know if you identify with that as well, but. I just feel like because the change is not going to happen tomorrow, um, we realistically have to worry about, you know, for me, it's taking my kids out. Um, and for you, maybe it's, you know, worried about your parents and, and where they go. Um, it's a very real pain and fear that we have that we're trying to deal with. And like I said, it's, it's not, you, can, you can't snap your fingers and it's gone tomorrow, right? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you totally hit the nail on the head there it's yeah it's a deep pain and it's a deep fear and it's because we know the problem is white supremacy 
And while the shooter is in custody, the problem still persists. And the problem mm -hmm. is deep and it's, it's been embedded in this country and our experiences for centuries. And like you said, it's not going to go away overnight and it's not going to be resolved overnight. And the people, I mean, the white supremacists, the people who are just so enraged and so empowered to take their anger and fear out on Asian Americans, like those folks are still very active, you know, and they're still very empowered and enraged. So yeah, there is this constant fear and this pain um, that persists and that's going to persist for a long time because when we talk about the problem being a systemic problem and a cultural problem um, and a social problem, those are just things that just take so much work. And sometimes I, I don't really know how we're going to get there. I know we're going to get there, but it's like, this is, this problem is so deep, you know? It is. It, like you said, it is just systemically embedded and it's not like racism is new. It's not like the inequities and the injustices are new. I think, you know, obviously the last 12 months have brought them to a spotlight that you can't ignore. Um, but I, you know, I think of the plight of black Americans and it's been hundreds of years. Right. And even for us, it's from the 1800s when the first Chinese person stepped, stepped into America and it's 2021 and here we are again. And I think what's also most painful is probably, you know, the attack on the elderly and how they are probably now reliving trauma that they relived when they first got here. Um, when they probably thought there was some modicum of, you know, progression. Um, and it's painful. It really is. Um, it's humanity at its worst, honestly, is, is, is how I feel. And it sickens me to my core. Um, but, you know, I, I, think, I think of it as, well, you know, we all have a part to play um, and we all have a job to do. Um, and what is it, right? Like I'm, I'm a parent, I'm a mother of two. So one of my most important jobs is to raise those two kids to be better, um, better equipped first of all, to deal with this, but to also be um, better just global citizens, right? It's tough. Um, so thank you for sharing your thoughts in that, you know, and, and I hope you know, if I could, I'd send you a warm embrace over Zoom, <laughs> but we're virtual. <laughs> but, um, you know, we'd love, you know, with that said, you know, usually what we do is we share our, our families history and their origin into the United States to get a deeper understanding of, you know, your, your own history um, and what brought you to where you are today. Well, I'm first generation born and raised uh, and I'm first generation Vietnamese American born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts. My parents are refugees um, from Vietnam. They both escaped the country after the war ended when they were in their they were teenagers, right? And they actually didn't meet until they arrived in Boston. So they had separate journeys. My dad is from the North in Hanoi. And my mom is from like Central South, um, originally from Wangai. But now my mother's side lives mostly in Nyachan. So they each share some story where as teenagers, you know, my mom, my, my dad was like the oldest um, male, oldest son, oldest brother in his family. And my mom was 
the middle, kind of like the middle child in her family. They're both one of seven or eight siblings, so a lot of kids. Um, and they both felt a responsibility to help their families out, help their siblings and help their parents. And at that time, in the late 1970s, they just saw no opportunity in Vietnam. And it was just a very hard time. It was, I mean, it was just war-torn Vietnam. So they each ended up escaping the country by boat. They're part of a group of people called Vietnamese Boat people or boat folks and it was and they, it took them several attempts before they actually made it onto a boat and ended up at sea for a few months a really really scary journey um i, I remember stories of them describing just being out at sea and just being like and surviving these massive waves where it was just kind of like 20 30 story waves and they're like they're at the top of the wave and they didn't know they would make it right and many people didn't make it um just from the waves or the storms and many people didn't make it from pirates. Um, but my parents each luckily arrived in Hong Kong when they arrived at a refugee camp and they each stayed there for a few years. And then eventually they were each sponsored to come to Boston um, as part of a refugee resettlement program. And that's where I was born and raised with my two sisters. It's a little bit about my parents' journey. Yeah, go ahead. And what was it like growing up in Boston for you? Hmm. So I I was born in 86, so 80s baby, grew up in the 90s, right? So that just gives some yeah. context to anyone listening. Um, I graduated high school in 2005. So I was, the, I was literally the second group of students who were allowed to create a Facebook account because at that time you had to have a .edu, right? Yeah. And so that's, that just gives you a little reference to like how I grew up. Um, and so growing up in the 90s, you know, I grew up in Boston, like Boston, Boston. I grew up through the whole public K through 12 ed system. And it was, it was weird. It was difficult. Like, you know, definitely experienced all the usual common racism of that an Asian American kid would experience in the 90s. And race in the 90s was not it was different than from today. Like today, it's amazing to see the internet and meme culture and just like a younger generation. And even like my generation, like there's so much self-discovery and so much radicalization and politicalization happening through social media. You see people dialoguing through social media. You see people um, learning about their identity and just becoming really politicized through social media, it's a really beautiful thing. Uh, we didn't have that growing up because I didn't have social media, right? So race and today, just like what's how normal and racial identity has become, like, you know, we're talking about, you know, the nuances of racial disaggregation. We're talking about the nuances of, of like a fluid gender identity. Like it's so beautiful to see how far our discussion around uh, our collective discussion and our collective conscious around identity has because come. But uh, growing up in the nineties, it was a very, very dichotomous discussion. Like race was a very dichotomous thing. Everything was very binary is either like black or white. Asian Americans are still rendered invisible today. However, I felt like we were even more invisible in the nineties. Right. Um, nothing, mm-hmm. nothing. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have a chance to find, like ourselves or people looked like us on YouTube, right? We only had TV in that and that was it. So it was weird. It was it was difficult. <laughs> um I grew up just like, you know, pretty embarrassed and ashamed of my cultural identity for most of my childhood. Um because it be, it was just such an indicator of my difference. And like yes. it, it alienated me. It made me feel embarrassed. It made it made other peers look at me like I was weird or you know, I just never felt 
pride in my culture because it made me feel different. It made people look at me differently. Yeah. Yeah. Was there, was there a, a large community of refugees in Boston? Um, there was definitely like a Vietnamese community in Boston. Um, but my family in particular, we didn't live in the Vietnamese community. We lived in Rosendale and then eventually Hyde Park. Um, we lived in a pretty like immigrant community, I'd say, but it was more like Dominicans and, um, Mm. Puerto Ricans and Haitians. Right. Um, so it was still, there was still a very like immigrant vibe, but we were like the only Asian American family in the block. Right. Um, on the block in Hyde Park. Um, but in terms of like my family circle, like, yeah, my parents would have some Vietnamese friends who, who we'd hang out with. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you were saying and how different it is for this generation growing up, I'm, I'm so happy being the mother of two young children. I mean, even your work and what you're doing, just that representation of what you can be, what, what is out there, what's available to you. I mean, there was nothing, right? Like, you know, we grew up thinking that <laughs> the standard of beauty is something different. Um, and, and we didn't even find that standard of beauty in ourselves. So it was a really troubling time and a confusing time to grow up in America. So like you, I'm very glad <laughs> that there's been so much progression in that regard. Um, so it was any of the early social justice um, work that you felt compelled and pulled in to do? Was that part of, because of the way you grew up? Um, yes, but it's, it's mostly part of the fact that I was really fortunate to find a youth activist organization here in Boston. Um, every So my whole life just changed when I was in high school and um, my sister was a part of the organization called the Coalition for Asian Pacific American Youth, and then I eventually entered the organization as well, and it was a youth organizing group um, that was housed on the, uh, on the campus of UMass Boston inside the Asian American Studies program, right? So uh, the Asian American Studies program at UMass Boston kind of like sponsored and supported our youth organization. So I was really lucky at a young age to have access to ethnic studies and Asian American studies and professors and like some of the college students at the time. Um, and so, you know, all of our workshops and our meetings were, were, were held on the campus of UMass Boston inside this an Asian American studies program. So that was like around sophomore year of high school. And so through that experience, I just, it unlocked everything. You know, I was able to deconstruct and unpack all of the internalized racism I was feeling. I was, I was able to like really deconstruct the systems of oppression that I was like living in. It just gave me context to my, like my experiences with racism. And it just empowered me because all of a sudden I went from feeling so small and so marginalized, so alien and so like inferior to realizing that I was a, a part of the system that was designed to to oppress me, right? And to, to design yeah. all communities of color. And on top of that, you know, I started to find my voice, not just through education and like Asian American studies, but also through organizing, you know, we organize youth rallies and demonstrations and um, conferences and workshops for other youth around the city and um, Northeast region. So that sparked my lifelong journey into activism. And it was because of my experiences as youth activists in Boston that I went to UCLA to major in, in Asian American studies. I was probably the only freshman who like applied in Asian AM because you know how like Asian AM is like something yeah. people discover and they take it because it's an easy major. But I like yeah. in my admissions that I was like, I want to be an Asian American studies major. And I actually got rejected in UCLA the first time because, you know, as an out student, it's very hard to get in. Yeah. And they, they rejected me. And, so, and I got in through an appeal letter. So I wrote a letter of appeal. And I was I specifically was like, listen, I am I am I want to go to 
UCLA because I want to major Asian American studies. I'm so passionate about my community, and this is what I want to do. This is what I want to. This is what I want to study, and I got in. Um, but yeah, it was it was a really, really, really big freak. So yeah, then I continued my journey in Asian American studies and community organizing um, throughout my years in undergrad in LA. This story is so wild for so many reasons. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, first of all. I think that is a fabulous illustration of just how important early education is, mm -hmm. which is still missing, I would say, in large part yeah. in terms of the larger education that, you know, my kids are going to get at school. Um, so I'm taking notes. Because <laughs> if, the, if the school districts are not going to uh, take that on board, we're going to have to take care of that ourselves. <laughs> yeah. And second of all, like, damn, like, that's grit, man. Like they told you no. And then you're like, mm -mm. <laughs> like, this is why. And then on top of that, like you have actually lived up to what you said you wanted to do, you know, I mean, in all of your work, which you have an extensive, like decorated background that obviously is not only in entrepreneurship, you were a restaurant owner, you were in film and writing, um, so, you know, and all the all the 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 hats that you've worn tie into this idea of representation and speaking for those who are marginalized. And and that's why I was saying, wow, like that story was full circle because you have lived and breathed what you set out to do, um, which is so amazing. So amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, I if anyone looks at my my history, I like you said, I've worn many, many hats, you know, and people are like, how do you do so many different things? And I was like, yeah, I, I have worn many different hats, whether it's like journalism or documentary filmmaking or, or anything, or entrepreneurship, they're different, but the thread is all the same. It, the mission has always been through all these different channels and all these different platforms and ventures and projects. It's always been to increase representation of the Asian American community or specifically the Southeast Asian American experience. And to just like, speak our truth, you know, and just to add more of our voices and our experiences to the overall mainstream conversation, because change isn't going to happen if people can't understand each other. Right. And right. so that's always been kind of like my driving, my driving motivation. Yeah. I mean, and that's in large part why this podcast even exists, because we need to share stories and nobody's going to do that for us. We need to do it for ourselves. Right. Um, and so you've very clearly delineated why you built Nguyen Coffee Supply. Um, but, you know, I think the interesting thing, if you could share with our listeners, is it's another story of like, you're trying to right a wrong here <laughs> on why you actually created it, because you found out some pretty interesting things in your research of coffee, right? When it first came into your head. Could you share with our listeners? Yeah, of course. Um so I first started I first started thinking brewing on the idea in 2016 because as a restaurant owner at that time, um, you know Vietnamese food and culture was having an emergence in New York City in mainstream America, and on a similar wavelength, I noticed that the product Vietnamese iced coffee was also becoming super trendy, popping up on menus here and there. However, every time I tried the Vietnamese iced coffee, it was actually not made with Vietnamese coffee beans. And I would ask them, oh, well, how did you make this Vietnamese iced coffee? And they'd say, oh, we just used like our house Colombian or Ethiopian or a super, super dark French roast. And we add the sweet condensed milk and it's like Vietnamese iced coffee, right? And that just, you know, the Vietnamese American, that just like really bothered me. 
for many, many reasons. One, it's just total miseducation and misadvertised and, and false advertising to consumers. Two, you're actually rendering, you're rendering the actual producers of that coffee bean, be it an Ethiopian producer or a Colombian producer, you're rendering them invisible for their labor, right? And you as a business, you're trying to profit off the cultural cachet of a Vietnamese iced coffee, the trend of Vietnamese whatever in this world, um, but yet the actual producers and creators of Vietnamese coffee and Vietnamese coffee culture do not benefit the transaction at all. So lots of injustices and lots of wrongdoings that mm -hmm. I was experiencing. And I was like, that's not, that's messed up and that needs to change. So then I started asking myself, well, why aren't they just using real Vietnamese coffee beans, right? Then I was like, oh, it's actually really hard to find real, you know, like premium fresh roasted Vietnamese coffee beans on the market. I looked at all the major supermarkets, Whole Foods. I go on, on the, online to all the websites of all the major specialty coffee roasters. And it's, you know, especially coffee over the last 10 or whatever, 15 years has been like single origin this, single origin that, right? And I was like, wow, I could not find one roaster or, or brand offering a single origin Vietnamese coffee bean. And I was like, why is that? That like blows my mind. When I would ask people in the industry about this, they were, I was like, they were, they were like, I was, I was like, why don't we roll single origin Vietnamese coffee or like specialty Vietnamese coffee? And they were like, oh, because Vietnamese coffee is gross. Vietnamese coffee is cheap. Robusta beans are gross. It tastes like burnt rubber tires or grandma socks, like super derogatory <laughs> negative statements. Like the passion behind their hate for Vietnamese Robusta, I was shocked, right? And I was like, well, I'm offended and this is racist. Like this is a whole nother yeah. kind of racism in the coffee industry. And I also just knew it wasn't true because I grew up drinking Vietnamese coffee, right? So then it makes me start thinking about like, who are the gatekeepers of the industry? Who are the ones creating these narratives about coffee? Because ultimately I'm not here to say that Vietnamese coffee is better than worse, but just we deserve to be included, right? Yeah. So there, I do want to acknowledge the piece, some truth in where this idea comes from, Tiffany. It's because for so long, Vietnam's coffee production has been um, kind of really funneled into the commercial mass commodity coffee trade, right? Mm. Um, because there are certain companies or corporations who want to buy a cheap coffee bean product because they then want to make a cheap product to sell, right? Yeah. And because of that, Vietnamese producers and farmers have no opportunity to advance their coffee if the rest of the world is not willing to look at them as a specialty coffee producer. One more piece, I'm almost getting, there's so many layers here, but also I discovered my research that I was like, oh, maybe Vietnam doesn't produce coffee. Maybe that's not why it's not available. Not true at all. I discovered my research that Vietnam is the number two producer of coffee in the world. And that just blew my mind to me. I was like, holy shit, how do I not know this as a Vietnamese American? Like, that makes me so proud to hear. And I was like, why don't I know this? Oh, lack of transparency, lack of visibility, mm -hmm. lack of representation. Because when Vietnamese coffee leaves Vietnam, it just becomes coffee, right? Mm -hmm. And so all of these things, Tiffany, just really like inspired me and motivated me to start the company when coffee supply and just really say like, this is messed up. This is wrong. And this needs to change. Right. And because when we think about specialty coffee, specialty coffee, isn't just something you drink. Specialty coffee is a collective investment from people all along supply chain to make these, to make these changes, to improve agricultural farming and to improve the livelihoods of farmers. Right. So, the way we have specialty coffee in Ethiopia today or Brazil or Colombia 
it didn't just happen on its own. It happened because producers were like, hey, farmer, if you try doing X, Y, Z to your crop, you'll get a better coffee bean. And if you have a better coffee bean, then we can sell it for a better rate. And then we can educate roasters why it's more expensive. And then roasters will educate baristas. And baristas will say, this cup is now $5 instead of $3. This bag is now $15 instead of $10, right? It's a collective investment. However, you know, no one was willing to invest that into Vietnam. They were just writing Vietnam off and just like placing Vietnam in a box of like, that's just cheap coffee. But it maybe it is cheap coffee because of what we know of history and corporations, but that doesn't mean it can't change, right? So that's why I started Win Coffee Supply. I mean, another story that is like so on point because I think, you know, obviously you're creating diversity through coffee first of all, but it is a parallel to how we are treated as a community, right? I mean, how coffee is treated is how we are treated. And I love that you were so indignant about it that you actually went out there to make a change because we need to tell the stories of people that are doing this so that other people can be inspired as well. Um, And I love that the facts that, you know, Vietnam is the number two coffee producing country in the world. Like nobody knows that. And to your point, it is that transparency and that education that just falls to the side because people don't think that our community is worthwhile to to get that accolade, right? But that is not the truth. Um, And we need to do our job to uplift that. And I love the idea that you're t- you're creating that space and in creating that space you're not taking away anything from anybody. Exactly. You're just allowing another culture, another community to also be celebrated and share the stage. And was it a difficult um <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously you've been an entrepreneur but you've not, you know, had the experience of how do I import Oh my you? gosh. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had because just context. I, I had zero experience in coffee prior to this. I had zero experience in importing and exporting, zero experience in roasting. Um, but as you said, Tiffany, I was so like the fire inside of me to right this wrong and this injustice of how dare you render my community invisible when we are a major contributor to global coffee experiences around the world. When we touch people's lives around the world through the daily ritual of making coffee, but yet they don't know their connection to Vietnamese people in Vietnam as a coffee producing region because no one talks about it, right? I was so, I was so like, just, I didn't have the words. I was like, like you said, I was so indignant. I was so enraged and I was so passionate about just writing this wrong and putting my community on the map and just bringing more visibility to what already exists, right? Um, I just happened to go down the one of the hardest businesses to figure out to do, to write this wrong. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was, it's challenging. It's, it was challenging in the beginning. I did not know shit about importing, exporting, roasting. I figured it out, honestly. I took it step by step, Google what I didn't know, asked people what I didn't know, um, called people. I, you know, I found spaces, agencies, companies on the online, and I called them and asked them questions. And I figured it out. And eventually I figured out how to import my first pallet. And then I imported like a couple pallets after that. And now we import by the container, you know, um, we, it's been, that's a huge jump. It's a huge <laughs> jump. It's a huge jump. And it's, I feel 
it's it's nice just learning the industry and now it's like what the my first palette took me like about five or six months to figure out like from starting to end everything from fda to customs to like figure out all the acronyms of like lcl fcl bol dol i didn't know shit about this industry and i was like figuring it all out it it was so so slow um it took me five or six months to get my first palette and i I have a photo with me my first palette it felt like such a moment and now it feels great where it's like i know like the back of my hand you know like i can call a shipment like easily so yeah it's definitely hard but it's it's worth it yeah but i think that journey is also important to share too because i think a lot of times people see entrepreneurs and they see the end product the glossy side but you know it's it's actually not um not that easy right like (laughs) there's a lot of um blood sweat and tears associated with that and i think for you from from what i did read like your family ties also remain strong through the course of you know living and whatnot you visited vietnam a lot as a child and you continued to into adulthood and and then you were able to actually in the end help a friend of your aunts is that correct yeah (laughs) yeah go ahead (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I still have um, cause because my parents have like are like one one of six to seven siblings, one of one of seven to eight siblings in Vietnam, um, and they're each the only ones who who left the country. So most of my extended family, my aunts, my uncles, mm-hmm. and now all of my cousins and all of like my cousins' kids are all in Vietnam. So um, I have a very very big family brought and we're all we're also very tight. You know, I I we're all we're a very tight family. So um visited a lot and you know my current my main producing partner um our relationship is through um my aunt who and they were friends and they my aunt connected me to my current producing partner so yeah a lot of support from family and even to this day like i i manage most i mean i manage everything with vietnam myself just through like zalo viber facebook chat like People in Vietnam don't really like to use email, so I still manage most of it myself. But if I ever needed support, you know, like I have family who I can always turn to there, which which is a big, big help for the business. Yeah, and I think, you know, we obviously love what you're doing because of that conscious intersection of like what diversity, inclusion, and transparency does, not only for the consumer, but for the producer, for everybody involved in that transaction um, to what you were saying earlier. Um, it just elevates, right? And that's what we need more of. It really does. Yeah. And, and and just for some context for folks, especially before we started, especially coffee industry, community experience in the U.S. was exclusively 100% Arabica, right? And it was exclusively, deliberately, intentionally, explicitly, that is explicitly ready, 100% Arabica. The words 100% Arabica became like this like standard and it became synonymous with like good coffee, like um, premium coffee. And what that did was it intentionally, explicitly excluded robust coffee beans, right? And so what that what happens when consumers and people in the industry do that is we're, you're actually barring an entire product, an entire region from having the opportunity to elevate their livelihoods, to advance their livelihoods. And it's not just Vietnam. Vietnam is the number one producer of Robusta coffee beans, but Robusta coffee beans are grown in many other countries around the world as well. And when you say that, say those things, you bar people all around the world in different countries from having the opportunity to go from like 
you know, like making this much money from a season to like this much money from season, right? It's just, it's so harmful, right? And, and it, it's so harmful. And it really, what we say here and ideas we perpetuate here as consumers and as quote unquote leaders of an industry, it has detrimental, you know, like effects on people's livelihoods on all around the world. I agree. And I think that's why storytelling is so important. And then you have done a lot. I mean, obviously, because you have a filmmaker background, you've done a lot of that in terms of the branding behind Nguyen Coffee Supply and being able to tell that story um, about Robusta. And I mean, things I didn't even know that it has two times the amount of caffeine that has more antioxidants than Arabica. I mean, like just general knowledge that people wouldn't know. And it is, you know, we have to tell these stories so people will know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, what what was the journey like for you in terms of like you were freelancing and bridging, building this company at the same time? What was that turning point for you that allowed you to kind of go full time? Yeah, great question. So, it, you know, I started thinking about the company in 2016. I made my first visit and established our current producing partners, really our current relationship with our current producing partner in 2016. And then in 2017, I was still freelancing and making films and uh, I was still involved in my, my last restaurant. And then by the end of 2017, I was like, okay, it is time to get serious and commit to building when coffee supply. So then I made that decision. And then by top of 2018, I, I committed to building it. And for all of 2018, I was still freelancing. I built it, launched it, and then we were live. And then throughout all of 2019 and most of 2019, I was still freelancing and uh, working on all the other projects and also while building the company. And Tiffany, around the summer of 2019, it just, I could feel it reaching a point where I could not do both well, right? Because yeah. both pathways demanded so much of me. And as someone who has been like a super multifaceted, multidimensional freelancer, I, I like, I, I, I took a lot of pride in doing multiple hustles at once. And for the first time in my life, I was like, oh my God, I don't think I can do both at once. So it was because um, when Coffee Supply was growing and we were getting a lot of organic traction and I wasn't paying myself at all because I was still freelancing. And then I just decided like, you know, if I really want to take this company, um, you know, where I know it can go because the feedback from the rest of the world was so positive and strong, I knew that I had to dedicate myself 100%. So that's when I decided to go full time in the fall of 2019. Yeah. And has this in large part been a lot? You you mentioned, obviously, you can learn whatever you want to learn if you research it on Google. But I think also as females, I think, you know, we sometimes have been bred to feel as though we're competition, right? Versus like the thought that, no, we need to actually lift each other up. Um, similar to the the parallel about the coffee and how there's, you know, a stage to share. Were there other people in your circle that were helping in terms of like helping you mentor um, or mentor you and kind of helping you navigate through this? Hmm. I definitely have lots of mentors in my life who, who I cherish. Um, and I, I have mentors for like different pockets of my life. They'll like have like political mentors who mentor me, my political consciousness and my activism. Mm -hmm. I have mentors who mentor me in life. And then I have mentors who mentor me in business and startups. Um, but really, I not, I wouldn't I honestly didn't have a mentor that was specifically in the coffee world, um, but a handful of mentors who mentored me in the business slash startup world. So yeah, they've been super instrumental in my growth. Yeah. Well, and think of what you can be for the next person that comes and tries to import 
coffee beans from their own region. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's so important to, you know, as, as a young community, like, especially, like, as a Vietnamese American, like, my parents came here in 1980, right? One of the things that I feel like our community lacks is intergenerational wealth and intergenerational knowledge, right, that some other communities have had, and that gives them a huge leg up, whether it's a network thing or a resource thing, right? Um, yeah, and I feel like our community as Asian Americans, uh, specifically Southeast Asians, I feel like we're starting to build that. Um, because the, my generation, which is the first one born here, we're now in, entering our adult, we're entering adulthood, right? And we're entering these positions of influence and decision making. And I think it's so important that we continue to share our knowledge and wealth and resources with you know, intergenerationally, because that's how we really build intergenerational wealth. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, you know, from my own personal perspective, my parents were just trying to survive, right? Like the resources that were available to them are very a very short list compared to what we can do and what we can bring to our children so it's a wonderful progression of life it's just more so we have to be those engaged individuals to participate in that full circle um, kind of livelihood and and I know in terms of like the coffee you not only sell the coffee but you also sell the fiend filters as well yeah. which also is a nod to the culture as well. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. Thank you for bringing that up. So we are really, really intentional about not just advancing and diversifying coffee as a product offering, but advancing and expanding and diversifying coffee culture as we experience it and talk about it in mainstream American culture, right? And so that's why when we talk about Vietnamese coffee, we always bring in the fiend filter. We offer the fiend filter because we want to celebrate the people and the culture around the bean. And I think so much, especially coffee, specialty coffee culture um, over the last 10, 15 years has been very bean centric, which I think has been really wonderful for the exploration of the bean. It's like where it's grown and the elevation and how it was processed and how it's roasted and how it's extracted. Like there's so much science around the bean. And for us at One Cost Supply, we believe in going beyond that, building upon that. And let's talk about the people and the culture surrounding that bean, right? Like what's their daily coffee ritual? Like how are they brewing? Do they even have the access to brew their own coffee or is everything exported, right? I think it, uh, making, building a company that's very people-centered um, while we're while selling coffee is a huge priority of ours. So yes, yeah, so we're huge in sharing the fiend brewing method. And, you know, as a coffee drinker, I look at all these brew, brew guides and it's like, which one do you want to choose today? The Chemex, the Pour with the French Press, you know, um, the Auto Drip. And I was like, why not the Fiend Filter? Like that in itself is like a layer of inclusion and representation, right? And mm -hmm. I think it's just because no one's thought to bring the Fiend Filter in the conversation. I think it goes back to this broader topic of like, if not us, then who? Like we have to tell our own stories and we have to push our own culture because we can't count on, count on or rely on anyone else to do it. And if they do, they probably really want to do a good job at it. No, <laughs> that's absolutely true. You might as well tell the story yourself. <laughs> and what do your what do what do your parents think of? What do they think about this venture? I mean, they must be so proud of you. Oh <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, Vietnamese parents that ever say they're proud. No, but you know they are. <laughs> they are definitely happy. Um, they're very very supportive of one coffee supply, and they're really happy to be because. For so many years, like six or seven years, when I was a full-time freelance writer and filmmaker, they had a hard time understanding that because 
they felt like it was a very unstable job and it was um it was very financially insecure and it was and they they just didn't think it was like a secure path for me and they were probably right right whereas when it came to starting the business like that they could understand like you buy a bean you sell a bean right and like that made sense to them because they're also both entrepreneurs themselves they were both small business owners um so yeah so from the jump they've been super supportive um of the company and they continue to be like my biggest cheerleaders that's amazing too that they share it or you share that with them in terms of them being entrepreneurs have you had to rely heavily on them for advice on anything? Um, so my mom ha- has a small laundromat and my dad has, has a floor sanding business. So they've both been business owners for like since the early 90s. Um, you know, my industry is so different, you know, when it comes to like yeah. CPGs, e-commerce, tech. There's so much they don't know about that world, but they know a lot about, I think, some of the more intuitive things around building a business, like how to build relationships you know, um, how to operate with integrity, um, how to build trust, how not to trust, how to be, how to be like smart about strategizing. Like they, they definitely offer insights in those areas. And, um, you know, I really, I really value them and I, I keep them, uh, I keep them looped in on the journey, you know, every week, every month, because I want to share with them. And I think it, it makes them really excited to see how it's growing. Um, and so, yeah, they're always dropping gems on me, um, but not like tactical business stuff, but definitely always dropping gems. Yeah, but I mean, I think they must be so proud to also see their last name as well, like plastered over a coffee bag, right? Like, it's probably something even you in your youth didn't think would be something that would come to fruition. Um, And I'm so glad, like, you know, my kids, my daughter specifically, has somebody like you to look up to, to be like, oh, that auntie, she's a badass, man. Like, I could be that badass, you know? (laughs) Stephanie, do we have time for the name story? Uh, yeah. Yeah? Okay. So yeah. this is the name story how I decided to name the company Nguyen Coffee Supply or Nguyen Coffee Supply. It was late. It was like fall of 2017. And I was like deliberating between two names, Nguyen Coffee Supply or Tiger Coffee, a Vietnamese coffee company, right? Um, I'm the year of the tiger. And I was like, Tiger Coffee, it's strong. It's bold. It's fierce. Like... That works. I'm 1986. I'm near the tiger. But then I was like, when coffee supply, I was like, okay, tiger coffee. I think I think Americans can get it. Like it's you know it's easy to say. It, it evokes a visual. When coffee supply, I was like, is America ready? Like, is this too much? Is it gonna backfire that people are gonna trip up and can't say Nguyen, 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 Nguyen? Like, is it gonna work against me? Like, I don't know if they're ready, right? And then. I went back and forth and then, you know, I had a moment where um, my sister got married in around in, in September 2017 and she had changed her last name, right? Which full support, right? And then but I remember talking to my dad, I was like, oh, like, how do you feel that Jen changed her last name? And he was like, hmm. He, he's like, oh, I, I didn't think about it. And he's like, it made me feel a little sad because then I realized my last name will end. Because he has three daughters. Three daughters. And then in that moment, Tiffany, my heart was just dropped. And then I was like, fuck patriarchy, right? <laughs> and in that moment, I was like, oh, I'm I'm going to make Wang the most famous last name in the world. And I was like, you know what? I don't care whether or not America is ready. I'm going to help get us there. So then yeah. that's how I decided to name the company 
Nguyen Coffee Supply, right? Of course, it leads into the whole representation piece. Our brand is all about bold and strong, mm-hmm. in your face, clear, right? And that's on yeah. the packaging. So that's how we decided to name. I decided to name the company Nguyen Coffee Supply. I love that story. And I'm so glad you did, though, because like that's like one step forward to the the larger problem that we're talking about. Um, I mean, like I said, we love what you're doing in terms of celebrating the, the, the diversity and the culture, the transparency, the inclusion, all of it. Your work is not going unnoticed and we are so appreciative of it. Um, yeah, you know, we usually end these episodes with a letter to the larger community. Um, you know, it could be anything that's on your mind or a piece of advice from your own personal journey. And we usually start by saying, dear Asian Americans. Mm. <laughs> I, I did just come up with something really, really short and simple throughout this call. Um, dear Asian Americans, be fluid, be free. Here now is exactly where you need to be. I love that. <laughs> That's beautiful. I think for particularly because so many of us have felt otherized and and erased, that that is a beautiful and poignant message. So thank you so much for sharing that with us and sharing your story with us. We are so grateful. You are a badass auntie. Oh, (laughs) thank you so much, Tiffany and and Bonnie and, um, and, uh, I'm going and Jerry. Sorry, I was like, thank you so much, Tiffany and Bonnie and Jerry and the whole Dear Asian Americans team. Thank you for creating this platform and, and capturing our stories and amplifying it. I'm so grateful to folks like you who are creating this space for us and doing the hard work amplifying. And thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be here. Yeah, well, you're doing the heavy lifting. So <laughs> thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Tiffany. Bye. Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to Sarah. Uh, for sharing her story. There's so much I love about uh, her story, her journey, and, and her business. Uh, we are big fans of the Wind Coffee Supply here in the Wan household, and I use the Fiend filter uh, today to make my coffee. So uh, thank you for not just creating a business, but creating a meaningful business that shares our culture. And as we wrap uh, Women's History Month here and, and what will be remembered in, in all of our minds for a very, very long time as, as a pivotal moment in history, uh, where we galvanize our voices and and then set up to racism and, and white supremacy and all the systems that continue to make us feel other. I, I could not be more grateful uh, than to have had Tiffany Huang, my dear friend, uh, be the host of our show uh, this month to share five beautiful stories. And I want to thank Zoreen, Lisa, Stephanie, Catherine, Helene, Sarah, for everybody, uh, for, for joining us and sharing your wonderful, amazing personal uh, journeys with us. Let, let's support all the women who are on this show. Let's support Tan Tan Foods. Let's watch Zareen on ABC. Let's go to uh, Stephanie's business and support her psychology practice. Let's go eat at all the on-family restaurants when we are able to. And let's buy some coffee today. So go head over to wincoffeesupply.com. Um, all the links will be available in our in, in our show notes. So uh, again, big thanks to Tiffany. Thank you to all of our amazing badass sisters. Thank you so much. We are excited to uh, turn the corner next month and bring you more exciting theories and American stories uh, with our April host, Marva Shi, an amazing college student at New York University. 
who worked with us here at Just Like Media over the summer and is also leading uh, one of the big events here in our community called the New York City Asian American Student Conference. So uh, get ready uh, next week to hear from Marva and nothing but gratitude from the bottom of my heart. Please, if you are joining us for the first time, be sure to subscribe, leave us an Apple review, or just send us a note. Follow us on Instagram. Everything is at TheorizedAmericans or TheorizedAmericans.com. And if you prefer to send us an email, just head over to hello at TheorizedAmericans.com. Friends, it's it's been a long month. Um, it's been a long month. It's been uh, a sad month, an angry month. Um, but I do want to take the positive away from it is that I do believe that our community has been woken up and that everybody, not everybody, but more people are listening to us. So uh, I am so honored and humbled to play a small role in that in amplifying and elevating our stories and uplifting the Asian American voice. So thank you for allowing me to do that. It is the best job I've ever had. And so thank you so much for tuning in and signing off for March on the Asian Americans. This has been Jerry Wan. Please, please, please be healthy. Be safe and be happy.